Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today it's that old anthology feeling once again. Rob, I know you're a horror anthology man. What is it about you that, that makes you gravitate towards the anthology? Well, I mean, you're talking about two different things, of course, when you're talking about uh, uh, horror anthologies on TV and those in the film. Because on TVs, it's like it's a different, generally, it's a different story every week. And with anthology films, uh, like the one we're going to be talking about today, you, instead of getting one complete film, you get uh, like three or four uh, shorter pieces that are stitched together and and presented to you. Uh, So I guess maybe part of it is just out of love for for creepy short stories and the fact that, that short stories don't have to obey the same rules as novels and therefore, and also short films don't have to obey the same rules as, as complete films. Um, I guess it's also nice that that they're only going to be, they're only going to feel so long, Uh, you know, they're going to get to the Mm -hmm. point. They can only be so drawn out. And, uh, and it's also like a little sampler box. Like if, if if an anthology film is coming at you and you know, it's going to present you with say three to four tales. Well, you can figure there's going to be maybe one dud in the bunch, uh, but at, at the very least, you'll have one that's pretty good, right? There's got to be like uh-huh. like one central pillar holding up the roof of the thing. Well, another way I would come at it is that even if they're all bad, it's more fun to have bad variety than bad monotony. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Like you, you're you're into the badness, and then you're out again, and then you're into some fresh badness. Yeah. I think I would really come back to what you were saying about the comparison to the lengths of horror fiction. This came up in a recent episode where we were talking – I think it was in The Thing from Another World where um, mm-hmm. we were talking about how uh, – it's hard to survey to be sure about this. But my feeling is that horror novels tend to gravitate more towards some semblance of a, quote, happy ending. Maybe not happy, mm-hmm. but some way in which the protagonist is – at least partially victorious or escapes or something. Whereas horror short stories tend more toward uh, bleak and cruel endings or endings that are, uh, that are a really uh, a mean and ironic twist of fate. And obviously I think there are a lot of reasons why people who enjoy horror fiction are drawn to endings of that sort, but they, they're harder to pull off on, at the end of a really long narrative where you're more invested with the characters, you've spent more time with them, and it hurts more to see them just sort of like ruined at the end. Yeah, and I think another thing that you, you certainly see in short fiction is that sometimes short fiction exists in a space where it doesn't have to concern itself with the ins and outs of a complex plot or some sort of uh, fantastic character arc. You know, their characters don't have to evolve and change and learn lessons about themselves. It can be more about trotting out an interesting idea or, um, you know, or, or, or in the, in, in the case of, uh, of, of horror, just a, just a fun monster or some, uh, you know, diabolical scenario, that sort of thing. Right. I, I think you're correct. I, I think that the um, the horror genre especially really does lend itself well to the anthology format. I mean, there are plenty of movies that are not horror that you could argue are in one way or another anthology films of a sort. Uh, I think one thing I've read is that uh, – is that Pulp Fiction was actually, the concept for Pulp Fiction was partially inspired by the movie that we're going to talk about today. Of course, Pulp Fiction is not Mm -hmm. horror, but today's movie is. Today's selection for Weird House Cinema is the Mario Bava 1963 Italian anthology horror series, 
Black Sabbath, or in Italian, it's called I Tre Volti della Para. I had to look up what that means. It means the three faces of fear. Which is a, a more accurate title, because if you're, if you're checking out Black Sabbath expecting witchcraft and, uh, you know, uh, Satan worshipers dancing around a fire or some sort of like pagan ordeal or something going on, uh, you're going to be disappointed because there is no actual Black Sabbath real or imagined in this picture. No, I would say the closest we come to that, it still doesn't really get there, but that, there's sort of that vibe in the middle segment of this movie, mm. uh, and by far my favorite, the Wordulak, which is, uh, I think, just an absolutely tremendous segment, and I can't wait to talk about it. Uh, but yeah, at least uh, the other two really don't have anything to do with that at all. Now, another interesting thing about the title for this film is that this is, um, th- this is said to be where the band Black Sabbath got their name. Oh, yeah. And I think I could be wrong about this, but I remember hearing it's not even from them necessarily seeing the movie. I think it was like they walked past a movie theater and this was on the marquee and they're like, right. Yeah, uh, I think there's an, there's another version of the tale, and I don't know how much th- – this sounds almost too perfect, so I, it sounds like maybe it was embellished. But there, I read a version where they were playing at a theater, and then across the street – Black Sabbath was playing, and the line was was far longer to get in to see the movie uh, as opposed to getting in to see them play. And they're like, what we need to do is change our name. We need to be Black Sabbath, and then the, the people will line up for us. It's like when uh, Patty and Selma proposed changing the name of Springfield to Seinfeld. You just look at what's popular now and, and try to leach off that. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I mean, I don't, yeah, so I, I don't know which of those stories is is true and to what extent, but uh, certainly it would be. It's hard to imagine the band Black Sabbath without the name Black Sabbath because it uh, the, the theme runs so deep through all of their music. Um, and we, Before we they were called Black Sabbath, they were called Earth. Uh, oh, apparently, yeah. that was not very convenient because I think there was another band at the time in that area called Earth. It, it has a a different. It taste uh, on the tongue uh, initially. Yeah, if you're if you're thinking about going to hear Earth, you have totally different expectations versus Black Sabbath. Well, as a huge fan of the at least like the first six Black Sabbath albums, I, I don't really get into the Dio years very much. But the but like the first six Sabbath albums, I think are they're a megalith. You know, they're they're mm-hmm. like one of those stone monuments from the ancient world, and uh, and and it's really hard to get under them. But I can't imagine how I would feel about them if they weren't by a band called Black Sabbath. That's so wrapped up in the feeling. Yeah, can you imagine Nativity in Black by Earth? You know, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. War Pigs by Earth. However, I could propose an alternative, which is that if they wanted to drill in and, and get to the heart of what makes Mario Bava's Black Sabbath really great, they could have changed the name of their band to The Wordulax. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's a fun name for a band. And it would imply that they've been in the mountains for five days and come back in a state of God knows what. <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and give everyone a, a taste of the trailer on this one, because uh, this, this is a pretty good trailer. I, I love the, the narration here. Do you believe in ghosts? This is the night when fear and horror walk hand in hand. This is Black Sabbath. Starring the incomparable Boris Karloff, the personable Mark Damon, and lush and lovely women. Even though one is from the netherworld, a vampire, a burdelac. 
Black Sabbath, as ancient as superstition, as modern as the telephone. So it's obvious from the trailer, but I don't think we mentioned that this movie has Boris Karloff in multiple capacities. So he is not only the uh, the star of one of the three segments in the anthology, but he's also sort of the uh, the, the pitch man. He is the, uh, the the company spokesperson at the beginning and end of the film. And of course, this is perfect because uh, in later years, he also served as a horror host on television shows such as Thriller and Out of This World. As as I think we've often driven home, though, uh, like there's such a a, a wealth of, uh, of of TV horror anthologies out there. So, for instance, um, if you just glance at um, listings for uh, Boris Karloff's Thriller, you'll see, oh, it only went two seasons, but it went two seasons in the 1960s. So those two seasons consist of 67 episodes. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And man, I thought it was long seasons when you go back and watch a show from the 90s or something where there's like 20 episodes in a season. That seems like a huge amount, but wow. Yeah. Now, to be clear, uh, Thriller uh, aired uh, 61, I mean, sorry, 60 through 61 and 61 through 62. So it actually aired uh, in America at least before Black Sabbath came out. So that might have been part of the the, the rationale here. It's like, well, audiences are, are used to Boris Karloff presenting material to them. He's already in it. Let's also get him up on the screen introducing this stuff for us. Well, you can hear it right in the narration of the trailer. There's the part where it says, like, uh, starring the incomparable Boris Karloff. I guess he is incomparable. But then the other cast members they introduce are the personable Mark Damon, which I thought was hilarious. And then they say, and lush and lovely women, gone unnamed. Come on, dudes. (laughs) (laughs) And we will list uh, some of their names here in a bit. Um, uh, There's some nice performances in here. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I left off, though. I think the uh, trailer qualifies. It says, uh, so the women in this movie, hey, we got beautiful women, even though one of them is from the netherworld. And I was trying to think back after having seen it, which woman is it talking about? I'm not even sure. Uh, yeah, there's not really one that's definitely from the netherworld. I mean, a lot of bad supernatural things happen um, to people and to some women in this uh, this motion picture, but I don't think any of them are from the netherworld. All right. Well, I guess before we talk any more about the actual contents of the movie, we should we should discuss some of the uh, the connections. And obviously, the place to start is with the director Mario Bava. Mario Bava, who lived nineteen fourteen through nineteen eighty, um, he was the, the director, but also uh, collaborated on the screenplay. He was the cinematographer. He did matte paintings. He did special effects. Uh, this is the the legendary Italian director with an unmistakable, obsessive, and phantasmagorical emphasis on visual composition. Uh, so, uh, if, what, you, you can just look up stills from his from his movies, and I feel like once you've gotten a taste of of how Bava uh, directs and how he composes a shot, uh, a strong still from any of his films is just instantly identifiable. Yeah. Um, it, it just it pops with a certain. Um, it, it's not only the color hue uh, because I, I want to stress it's not just a matter of oh well Mario Bava used some cool gels here and there like no it's the complete it's his use of light and reflections and just the overall composition of uh, of every every shot in the film. You ever see uh, one of those animated movies in which there is a magical gem or artifact that glows with magic power? Mm-hmm. Mario Bava's movies are like that. There's something about the way they look that the, the, the frames from the movie glow with magic power. Yeah, even when 
there's there's less of a, a reason for it to be glowing so uh, like the, 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 I, I was thinking as I was watching this particular picture that it's it's like an alien civilization that that communicates through like synesthesia is trying to speak through the picture you know it's like it's that ob- ob- obsessive like it, the, the colors are are clearly of of, of great importance uh, to bava and all of this though i will say that it, i totally agree with you color is a big part of it and and bava mm-hmm. uh frequently used sort of expressive colorful lighting Col- colored lighting in in his movies that is not strictly realistic meaning it's not reflecting a color you would actually expect to see if this scene were taking place in the real world but rather colors that sort of reflect feelings coming through uh, and, mm-hmm. and reflect sort of uh, otherworldly unseen influences but there are also visual sensibilities he has where, where that kind of glowing comes through even when it's not in color like uh, the example that comes to my mind is his earlier movie Black Sunday, which is in black and white, and yet it mm-hmm. still glows with magic power. Yeah, that one was from 1960, and it is interesting to imagine this this uh, leap from black and white to color for Mario Bava, where they're like, "Oh, by the way, you can shoot in color now," <laughs> and, uh, and and and, uh, and 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 you can imagine his excitement uh, at being able to do so. So um, Bava's background is interesting. Uh, he was the son of uh, early Italian cinematographer uh, Eugenio Bava, and Mario trained as a painter, venturing into the world of cinematography uh, as well uh, in the late 30s and the early 40s. But then he eventually started directing as well. Uh, it began with some documentary shorts and some uncredited directing work on some various genre films. But then in 1960, that's when Black Sunday came out. That, uh, the, the, he directed that. And uh, that was a very well-regarded and financially successful film. And so Black Sabbath is very much the color follow-up to that, thus the similar release title. Uh, again, kind of coming back to the uh, like studio thought here. It's like, well, uh, Black Sunday did pretty good. Uh, what can we call the next one? Uh, let's call it uh, Black Sabbath. There we go. Well, this may be, if that is indeed where the title comes from, I, I got to say this is the rare case where I would go with the marketing over the original because, once again, the three faces of fear, that may be more literally descriptive of what you're getting with the movie, but it doesn't really have the same punch to it. Yeah. So Mario Bava directed into the 1970s initially, he retired, then he came back at the behest of a new generation of Italian horror filmmakers, including his own son, director uh, Lumberto Bava. Um, He came back to direct 1975 Shock, and this would prove to be his last feature film as he then died in 1980. But uh, he directed a number of pictures, so we're not going to touch on them all, but I thought we might talk about a, a few of them here. Uh, one of them is Planet of the Vampires from 1965. Rob, can you see the Planet of the Vampires poster right behind me on the wall? I do. I see that. Yeah, you have it right there up on the wall behind you. So, uh, you know, obviously you're a fan. Um, uh, I I finally got around to watching this in full this year. And um, I, I have to say, it 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 wasn't the most enthralling motion picture when it came to acting and the, and the plot, but uh, such a gorgeous science fiction film to watch, like all of the visuals in it. Um, he does a, an amazing job uh, and devotes the, the vast majority of the film's energy and limited budget, I have to add, uh, to create highly effective and colorful alien landscapes, haunted spaceship hallways, also has just some incredible costumes. Absolutely. So I love Planet of the Vampires, but 
I usually watch it without sound. It's a movie mm-hmm. that I love to put on like in the background while I'm hanging out with friends and listening to music. That's that's the ideal Planet of the Vampires experience for me because it's one of those movies. It's a rub the fur movie. It's a movie that's not really about the plot or what happens in it. It is about uh, the, the the visual textures on screen, and that includes everything from like you you single out the costumes. The uh, the spacefarers in the movie are wearing these bizarre black leather spacesuits with these leather helmets. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the, yeah, the lighting and the sets are, are just absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And it reminds me of a, a quote that I ran across from Mario Bava, where he said that, uh, uh that horror films are 70% lighting. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I think he has a strong point. I mean, you definitely see that in his work, uh, but you, we've we've talked about various examples on the show before, where we say things like, "Oh, well, the monster costume wasn't great," but in this scene, the lighting's amazing, so it absolutely works. Well, like in the thing from another world, yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. Like if you look at the costume James Arness is wearing, like actually in full lighting, it doesn't look very impressive. But they found a way to make it look good within the narrative by either keep, keeping him in silhouette, backlit, so you can't really see him, so he's just a frame, and or just by giving you quick glimpses of him where you can't really understand what's going on. Like they, they make do in a very effective manner with some some limitations in terms of, of costuming and makeup effects. Uh, of course, uh, Planet of the Vampires was highly influential. Uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes been asked, would we even have Alien and all the films that came after Alien had it not been for Planet of the Vampires? Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and perhaps not. You know, Certainly, Bava was a very influential filmmaker. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the big things I think that's called out with respect to Alien is there's a scene in Planet of the Vampires, and Planet of the Vampires came much before. It was 1965, is that right? Yeah, 65. There's a scene where the astronauts are on this uh, on this desolate planet, and they go into a cave, and they find a giant alien skeleton stretched mm-hmm. out on the surface in there, very much like with the discovery of the derelict spacecraft with the bizarre uh, sort of alien skeleton fused to the chair in, in Alien. Uh, so ultimately, I think Black Sabbath moves uh, moves along a lot uh, a lot better. It has better pacing uh, uh, than Planet of the Vampires. Uh, but there were still times in this film, as within uh, as as in uh, Planet of the Vampires, where I felt myself disconnected from whatever was happening or supposed to be happening in the plot. But I was still completely drawn in to the visual world presented on the film. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I really appreciated the plot, especially in the word you lack, but uh, through and through, it looks pretty great. Another Bava film that I, I'm a fond of is Danger um, uh, Diabolique from 1968. This is a, a stunning, stylish spy crime yarn starring John Philip Law and uh, uh, Adolfo Selly. Uh, people might remember him as the villain from Thunderball. Uh, the James mm. Bond film. Uh, Terry Thomas is also in it. Uh, this was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 back in the day, and it is indeed quite ridiculous, but stunning from a visual perspective. Basically, it has that 60s Bond vibe uh, focused uh, you know, all on comic book crime and then turned up to about a thousand Bava style. I think it was actually the very last episode of the main run of Mystery Science Theater. That's right, it was. Uh, and it, kind of a strange choice there because... I don't know. I would actually argue that movie's not all that bad. I mean, it's silly in in a way that a lot of these movies would be silly, but it's also I don't know. It's it, it's stylishly executed in a very pleasing way. 
Oh, I mean, the best films on Mystery Science Theater 3000 and often the, the best episodes of Mystery Science 3000 revolve around movies that are on their own very watchable. I know you're thinking about Jack Frost. Oh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great example. There are multiple examples. I think when I think of my favorite episodes, they're often films that that I can and, and sometimes have watched on, on, on my own, you know, without, uh, without the riffing. Now, Mario Bava was, uh, uh, was, again, highly influential, and one of his most famous students was Dario Argento. Mm. If you've ever seen Argento's 1977 classic Suspiria, then you've certainly bathed your eyeballs in a very Bava-inspired color scheme. Yeah, I think it's, it's pr- pretty much unquestionable that Argento picked up where Bava left off with the expressive, colorful lighting, uh, especially for his Giallo films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mentioned uh, Mario's son, Lamberto Bava. Uh, he directed such films, uh, went on to direct such films as 1985's Demons, which is excellent, uh, along with a couple of sequels to that. Uh, 1984's Devilfish, which is not so excellent. It's basically a, a Jaws cash-in, one of, one of many. Uh, but uh, Lamberto Bava is still making movies. He had a horror movie starring uh, Gerard Depardieu come out this year. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay called Twins, I believe. Uh, and, and I had to check. It has nothing to do with the Arnold um, <laughs> movie. Okay. I gotta look that up. All right. Let's, let's see. A few other people involved in this film. Uh, Marcello uh, Fondato uh, has a screenplay credit, lived uh, 1924 through 2008. Italian screenwriter and, direct, and director, though I don't really know uh, any of their films. Um, then there's uh, Alberto uh, Bivillacua, who lived 1934 through 2013, has a screenplay collaboration credit, uh, also was a screenwriter on Planet of the Vampires, as well as the Satanic Panic documentary Witchcraft 70, which was narrated by Jack Palance. Now, the, the film, and certainly this comes out in the trailer, uh, the film claims that the, th- the three stories in it are based upon uh, fictions by Chekhov, Tolstoy, and Snyder. Uh, and specifically, it's supposed to break down like this. Uh, the Drop of Water by Ivan Chekhov, uh, though seemingly connected to a story by Franco uh, Lucentini, and then The Telephone by F.G. Snyder, and then uh, a story not by not by Leo Tolstoy, as that might um, uh, uh, lead you to believe, but one by uh, Alexei Tolstoy. And this would be the the one allegedly by Alexei Tolstoy would be the wordlac, the one that is mm-hmm. uh, the one with Boris Karloff in it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Boris Karloff then. Uh, Boris oh, yeah. Karloff plays Gorka in this, and he's also the, the host. Uh, he lived 1887 through 1969, uh, a, a bona fide cinema legend, going beyond genre films and horror films and weird films. I mean, he's, he, he's just one of these, uh, these, these icons of cinema. His horror charisma is unmeasurable in this. It's just yeah. it's off the screen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Karloff was a British actor, uh, born William Henry Pratt. Uh, uh, so, you know, this is very much his stage name, Boris Karloff. Um, probably is just going to be ever, forever associated with Frankenstein because he played the monster in James Whale's 1932 adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, and then he went on to play the role in other pictures as well, including the, the excellent 1935 film, uh, the, the Bride of Frankenstein. Other key horror films from Karloff include uh, 32's The Mummy, uh, 34's The Black Cat, 1940's Black Friday, and much more. 
The Black Cat, he actually stars uh, opposite Bela Lugosi, and I think that was the first movie where they had uh, both done that. And I actually haven't seen that one, but I've been meaning to see it for a long time, and uh, apparently it's a lot of fun. I've heard great things about it. I've heard that it's it's it, it holds up really well, uh, yeah. so I have checked that out. Uh, now, Karloff was also famously the non-singing voice of the Grinch in the 1966 animated version from Chuck Jones. Um, he's, so uh, the thing about Karloff is that he he worked a lot, and even though he's best remembered for his horror roles today, he acted in a wide variety of uh, of, of films. He worked stage and screen. He did television. Uh, we already mentioned his horror host gigs. Um, he he did a lot. Yes, and. I will say that uh, – so I just saw this movie, Black Sabbath, for the first time this week. And I got to say, this is a new favorite Karloff role for me. We'll discuss the details of the Wordalak in a little bit. But he plays this wild, hairy, wind-blown patriarch of the Carpathian Mountains who has this demonic energy. And it's so, so powerful. I, I don't know exactly how he's doing it. But in every line, he feels so at home, truly like a man just hardened by the wilderness who has met something unspeakable upon the mountaintop. Yeah, he, he's really able to channel a lot of energy through this role. And it's, it's, it's especially interesting considering that this, again, is late career Karloff. He was 75 or 76 at the time when they filmed this. Uh, but he's yeah, still incredible and uh, apparently was just always a pleasure to work with. I, I noticed that, that Bava singled him out as being just a, a great guy to work with. Uh, now, uh, another interesting uh, late Karloff film, I don't know if you've seen this one, Joe, uh, Peter Bogdanovich did a film in 1968 called Targets. Yes, uh, I have seen this one in yeah. which Karloff essentially plays himself. I mean, he plays mm-hmm. a character, but the character he plays is named like uh, named like Doris Orlock or something, and he and he's an aging horror film star, and he has to go up against like a, a crazed mass murderer. Yeah, it, like he ends up confronting an active shooter at a drive-in movie theater. It's uh, like it's a serious, serious film um, uh, from a young Peter Bogdanovich, who would of course go on to direct uh, the Last Picture Show. Um, but he was one of uh, Roger Corman's crew at the time, and for this film, Corman apparently told Bogdanovich that he could make any kind of film he wanted to. There were just two uh, two things he needed to make sure of. One, he had to use stock footage from 1963's The Terror, and he had to use Boris Karloff for the two days of filming that he still owed Corman. <laughs> but uh, as it was, it worked out. Karloff loved the script and shot uh, a total of five days and refused additional pay. Uh, wow. So uh, it's a, a fun story, but also I remember it as being a good movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember being impressed with it. Yeah, a good friend of mine uh, showed me this movie many, many years ago, back before I really was in the Weird House cinema mode. Uh, I think I didn't know who Roger Corman was at the time or anything, but mm-hmm. uh, I remember being very uh, enthralled and impressed by it. It's it's a very stark, scary, realistic kind of movie. Uh, different than, very different than the the stylish uh, fantasy horror that Boris Karloff did for most of his career. Yeah. Well, should we talk about the personable Mark Damon? <laughs> oh yeah, as he's introduced in the trailer, the personable Mark Damon. Uh, I'd say he's. He's a he's a seven or eight on the personability scale. Yeah, he's I guess he's the closest that we have to like a male hero character in the in the the whole picture. Uh, plays the character what Vladimir Durf Durf a, yeah he he plays a 
a count or some kind of aristocrat who rides through this village in the Werdulak. Again, I guess we'll discuss more of the plot details of that in a bit. But yeah, he's the closest thing the movie has to sort of a dashing leading man. But mm-hmm. even in that story, I don't know if he's exactly that because he comes off to me as uh, in that story is kind of glib, callow, and confused, not really recognizing the the weight of the supernatural power he's up against. Yeah, he's he's doomed. This guy, <laughs> but uh, but Mark Damon is interesting though because of, so first of all, he was born 1933, still alive as of this recording, um, and still active. Uh, not as an actor though, at least not since. Um, I think he retired in the late 70s, or, or I'm not sure about the late 70s. At some point in the 70s, he retired from acting, and mm-hmm. I think did a few little bits here and there, um, the most recent being in 1997, but he's continued to produce. He's been a producer or an executive producer on 67 pictures and counting, and those titles uh, that he has, has a credit on include Das Boot, The NeverEnding Story, Clan Whoa. of the Cave Bear, Nine and a Half Weeks, Short Circuit, Flight of the Navigator, The Lost Boys, Beastmaster 2, um, not one, but two different Universal Soldier sequels, and, and then just a bunch else. So uh, he's, he seems, seems kind of like a, a big money player in Hollywood. Maybe he's the producer who came in and demanded that the Lost Boys feature more footage of that saxophone guy. <laughs> it could, could be. He's like, I want 10 minutes of saxophone guy at least. <laughs> now, acting-wise, Damon was also in Roger Corman's 1960 film House of Usher, which starred Vincent Price. And he has one writing credit, uh, and I found it interesting because it's The Devil's Wedding Night from 1973, uh, on which Joe D'Amato apparently did oh. some uncredited directing. Oh, um, no. <laughs> which is always a great sign. Um, and then Damon plays not one, but two different roles in it. Um, <laughs> so I, I looked it up. The poster looks fabulous. It looks, it looks very 1970s um, international horror. Okay. Featuring the personable George Eastman. <laughs> no, there's no, no George Eastman in this one. Though, uh, I will say that, Ma- that, uh, that Mario Bava directed at least one film that had George Eastman. I can confirm at least one George Eastman project. Was he in Bay of Blood? No, he was in, what, Rabid Dogs? He might have been in Bay of Blood. Um, okay. there, there, there's a little Eastman just sprinkled throughout uh, uh-huh. the cinematic universe. All right. Uh, let's talk about some of the uh, the other players in the in, in, in these three different segments. Uh, now, a lot of these are actors that I, I'm not uh, really familiar with, and there aren't a lot of titles uh, that they were in that uh, really connected with me. So there's there's not a lot to to really to go through here. Uh, but um, let's start with there's Susie Anderson who played. Uh, let's see, what's this character's name? Stank, Stanka? Stanka, um, uh, which I, I, no offense to people who actually have that name, but in English, that name does sound funny because it sounds like stinker. Yeah. But, uh, this is a, one, this is, I guess our, our gorgeous love interest for Damon's character. Uh, she was born 1940, Croatian actor who worked, um, during the 1960s. And then there's uh, Rika Deljana, who plays Maria, born in 1934, Greek actor with extremely expressive eyes, um, uh, or, or at least Mario uh, Bava was able to, to, to shoot her in, in many scenes where she has really expressive eyes. She's, she's the mother, I believe, uh, in, in these sequences, uh, and we'll discuss her in a bit. But she had a long career, mostly in Greek cinema and TV. Now, these are all actors who are in the, the Werdulak segment. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a couple of other segments of the movie that I guess we've been focusing on less. Do we want to mention some of the actors in these segments before coming back to describe them? 
Yeah, so the telephone, which which we'll uh, discuss, has a very small cast. The main character is Rosie, played by Michelle Mercier, who is a French actor who worked across multiple decades, born 1939, still alive as of this uh, recording. And then the other major character in that is Mary, played by Lydia Alfonsi, who was born in 1928, also still alive as of this recording. Italian actor who was active well into the 1990s. Her last film was the much-acclaimed Life is Beautiful from 1997, and she also appeared in a Steve Reeves Hercules movie in 1958. So I don't really love the telephone. We can explain more about our feelings (laughs) about the individual segments in a bit. The telephone was definitely my least favorite of the three, but I do really like Lydia Alfonsi in it because she does a very good job of acting creepy. Yes. All right, and then finally we have the the segment, The Drop of Water. Uh, I'm going to highlight three different actors in this. Uh, there's uh, Jacqueline uh, Peru, who lived uh, uh, 1923 through 2005, plays Helen Chester. So uh, she was a French actor, active from the early 40s through the 1970s, and uh, she's the, the mother of French actor and director Jean-Pierre uh, Lode, who uh, starred in The 400 Blows. Hmm. Uh, there's also a character in this that is referred to as the maid, and it's played by Millie, no last name. Uh, Millie, who lived 1905 through 1980, was an Italian singer, actress, and cabaret performer, and apparently something of a pop star of the day. Hmm. So she she's uh, older when this movie was made. So she she plays a maid who sort of uh, comes and goes while the main character, uh, played by Jacqueline Peru, is is sort of uh, contemplating doing something very ill advised with respect to the spirit world. But the maid mm-hmm. is this kind of uh, mundane influence flitting in and out of the room while this deliberation goes on. <laughs> And then uh, finally, there is a neighbor character in this played by uh, Harriet Medine, who lived 1914 through 2005, an American actor who relocated to Italy with the USO after World War II. Uh, She has a pretty great filmography uh, with uh, such titles as Death Race 2000, uh, which is a a fun flick. Uh, We've talked about that before. The Witches of Eastwick, Schlock, and The Terminator, in which she plays the role of customer. Customer where? I was trying to figure, I was looking around, you know, short of actually watching Terminator again, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I can't imagine she's in the gun. She's probably in one of those sequences <laughs> the where the Terminator store. steals a bunch of stuff. Because uh, a, lot, a lot of the Terminator yeah. is just him robbing places so he can have clothes, robbing people in places so he can have clothes at guns. Or the good guy played by Michael Bean robbing people. Yeah, it's a whole sequence. It's just naked dudes uh, committing uh, various uh, crimes and robberies. Maybe she's walking out of Dick Miller's gun store when Arnold Schwarzenegger's walking in. That's a possibility. <laughs> she, she bought the last plasma rifle. I was just remembering the, the part in Terminator that's actually really great when Schwarzenegger uh, rips that guy out of the phone booth. And he doesn't really oh. harm him. It's just a guy on a phone at a phone booth and, <laughs> and uh, the Terminator grabs him by the shoulder and sort of throws him down on the sidewalk so he can use the telephone book. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, why would, would the Terminator, a machine, use any more force or effort than was necessary in any given task? Yeah, and you can hear the guy going, you got a serious attitude problem, man. <laughs> oh, that's good. 
All right, finally, the music on this film is interesting because, uh, for one thing, you have two different scores. The original score was uh, was by Italian jazz band leader Roberto Nicolosi, uh, but uh, American International Pictures replaced his score with one by Les Baxter, uh, who is, of course, the king of exotica and also later did the minimal electronic uh, score for Frogs. Oh, I remember that now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's... I guess it's a memorable score, but it's it's not very it's not an exotica score uh, for frogs, and this also is not particularly ex- exotica music either. It's certainly not electronic, um, but I liked it well enough because I could pick up on some Baxter sensibilities in it. Um, but it, 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 I was curious after that because I'm thinking, well, what did it replace? Because we can all think of examples where a score has been replaced by something superior and also cases where a score has been replaced by something um, maybe you know, less effective uh, for, mm. you know, for a different audience. Um, so I was listening to the, the Nicolosi score a bit, and it sounded good as well. I don't know. Uh, I, liked, I liked them both. Maybe Baxter's score is a little bit more dramatic and a little bit more you know, American. I don't know. You know, to be honest, I just did not really notice the music much at all, so I don't have much of a comment on it. Yeah, I don't know if I would have really looked at it that closely had, had it not been for the Les Baxter um, connection. Because uh, I, I, I do listen to a fair amount of uh, like Les Baxter and some like Bossa Nova music, uh, uh, generally like very late afternoon. There's a point in the late afternoon where... Um, where you know I have to put aside the the synth music and the and the rock music and and only um, exotica or bossa nova will do the tiki drink hour. Yeah, I guess even though generally I'm not I'm not actually having a tiki drink. I'm generally like cooking supper or something. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it feels right. It feels appropriate. All right, now that we've got all that out of the way, let's get back into the plot of these three horror stories that look fabulous, have great people in them, but uh, ultimately have some interesting ideas as well. Yeah, yeah. So I would say, and you have, you and I may have had some different reactions to these, but I would say that um, it's an, it, this is an interesting movie to recommend because while there are three segments, uh, and in my opinion, one of them is astonishingly good, Another is quite good, and the third for me I found kind of boring and unpleasant. Um, mm. But I, there's still, I think, some interesting things to talk about with it. And uh, while I think that there were different releases of this movie that put them in different orders, the version I saw starts with the one of the three that was, for me, by far the weakest. Uh, so this would be The Telephone. Ah, yes, The Telephone. So the telephone, unlike the other two, is a more realistic story. And the basic premise is is pretty simple. It is a psychological thriller about a young woman who is terrorized by a threatening voyeuristic creep who won't stop calling her on the phone. And so I got to say, this is the one I, I didn't really super enjoy. I Like it picked way up with the second one for me when you get to the word lack. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one kind of has a lot of things I don't really love about Italian horror movies of this period and not as much of the stuff that I do love. It's it's weird because especially from the trailer, you get the impression that they, they moved the telephone to the opening because they thought it would connect with audiences more. Like maybe mm. they thought audiences didn't want this, this gothic uh, horror tale. Instead, they they would want something that's tied into technology and you know feels more cutting edge and dangerous. And yet at the same time, I was reading, it sounds like 
American International Pictures had like asked um, them to cut down on some of the what they would have probably thought of as dangerous aspects of the um, of that of that opening uh, segment. Um, supposedly, AIP asked for lesbian romance aspects of the segment to be reduced and that a supernatural element uh, be uh, sort of implied. But I have to say, at least in the version I watched, um, I, I mean, I still got the sense that there was some sort of past romantic connection between the two female characters. And I don't remember anything supernatural in this segment. It seemed very based in the real world, though, of course, through that fabulous Bava lens. Yeah, well, to be honest, now that I think about it, I'm not sure which version of the movie it was that I saw. One thing I've seen comparing them is that the I think it was the original Italian version had the more beautiful colors and that the American release might have had some more muted colors. The version I saw had very beautiful colors. So I'm thinking – and the version I saw, of course, was in Italian with subtitles. It wasn't Yeah, dubbed, same here. I, yeah. I don't know if there is a dubbed version of the movie. I think there is, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I I didn't I wasn't able to find uh, I, as, when I rented it I rented it through um, uh, well I went into to Apple and then I did a like a seven day trial of AMC Plus and that's how mm-hmm. I, I got to watch it and then when I pulled it up I was expecting it to be dubbed but then I f- saw that it's oh it's in Italian with with no option for other uh, audio channels and just with subtitles uh, but but I, I greatly enjoyed it. But I see, I see examples of people saying that they grew up watching a version in which they hear Boris Karloff's actual voice. So um, mm. I mean, I, that makes me think there is a dubbed version of it. Uh, but this was not it. So with the telephone, I'd say that I, I, I guess I kind of like the simplicity of it. Uh, it does proceed at a very slow pace, but then it has some very nice twists in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it does not have that gothic feel that uh, that the, the second segment has. Uh, you know, it doesn't have that supernatural sense of otherworldliness. Uh, the interiors in this segment are, at first glance, uh, a lot more muted. We spend a lot of time with beautiful women with perfect skin in kind of porcelain-colored garments moving through wedding cake-colored apartments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even this is, is very finely crafted and wonderfully punctuated uh, by various colorful items in the background. I don't know if you, you noticed this or not, Joe, but there'll be like, you know, everything's this kind of wedding cake porcelain world. And then there'll be like one jade statuette on a shelf in the background. And somehow, like through that Mario Bava magic, it makes the whole thing pop. Yeah. And I don't even notice that, I'm, um, that the plot is moving along so slowly because I'm just admiring the shot. Or the red telephone. Red telephone. Uh, and, and then, you know, it moves at a slow pace, and then alarming things will happen. There's a great um, creepy eyes peering in through uh, the window of the apartment. Uh, that that scene really uh, shook me when I saw it. Oh, this movie's all about windows. Yeah, windows, uh, mirrors as well, but certainly windows. And I think... I think you see that in other Bava films as well. Uh, lots of mirrors, people looking through glass. And it makes sense given his um, his focus on the visual medium. So I think you sort of raised the idea that this segment is kind of a proto-Jallo film. And mm. I, I wanted to explore that idea a little more. So uh, for people who aren't familiar, Jallo films are a particular subgenre of Italian murder mystery thrillers that were popular in the 60s through the 80s. And some of the big-name directors of Giallo you might recognize are Dario Argento. Uh, usually, 
his supernatural movies like Suspiria are not usually considered Jallo films, though they share a lot in common with them stylistically. Usually, Jallo films are thought to be uh, to have basically realistic causation. They're they're not like about uh, witchcraft and magic and stuff. They're about like a murderer who wields a razor blade or something. Uh, like what uh, the woman with the crystal? Wait, is it? The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Yeah, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. I mean, Argento mm-hmm. made these naturalistic Jallo films as well. Bird with the Crystal Plumage, uh, Deep Red, Cat of Nine Tails, Tenebrae. These are all Jallo films he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other big names in, in Jallo are Sergio Martino, Lucio Fulci, and the director of the movie we're talking about today, Mario Bava. Bava was the director of Blood and Black Lace from 1964, just one year after Black Sabbath. And I think Blood and Black Lace, I think, is often considered sort of the archetype of the early Jallo movie, that a lot of Jallo descends from Blood and Black Lace. I'd love to watch that one someday, because I noticed uh, just today that it has Cameron Mitchell in it. Oh, that's right. It does. Uh, It's been a little while since I've seen it, so I don't remember much in particular about what he does in it. But yeah, anyway, one of the things I noticed is that Blood and Black Lace, I think, has a lot of stylistic similarity with the the telephone segment in this movie, except the stylization is turned way up. Uh, So I'll get back to that in just a minute, but to discuss some of the main characteristics of Jalla movies, they very often feature a murderer who strikes again and again, whose identity is unknown, often masked or with their face hidden in shadow. And they will very often wear a similar outfit, like a long trench coat and black gloves and maybe a hat. Hmm. In, in Jallo movies, the murders are usually sort of creative or grisly or of a creepy and squeamish nature. So they're usually not just going to be like the killer shoots somebody with a gun. They might kill somebody with a barber's razor or a needle or something. Mm-hmm. Jallo movies also tend to be kind of voyeuristic and sexually charged, often mixing sexuality and violence in an unsettling way. And to varying extents, they tend to be highly stylized. Uh, Not not all of the directors are are like this, but a lot of them are – they'll use these lurid colors and creative cinematography. Uh, This is typically the opposite, by the way, of what I would say are the dominant trends in murder mystery films, say, in the United States, which – I think are overwhelmingly they, they tend toward a gritty, realistic, or muted look with kind of matter of fact camera work. It's like they're trying to make it look like real life, whereas Italian Jallo films tend to love these you know weird red and purple gel lights and tilted camera angles and shots reflected in a mirror and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, to say nothing of the music. Yeah, oh yeah, famously like the Argento Jallo movies have have wonderful scores uh, usually that you know, involve Goblin or Argento himself Mm -hmm. in some way. There's another strange recurring detail that I notice in a lot of Italian Jalla movies, especially the movies of Dario Argento. But a really common recurring thing is that the protagonist will witness an image or a scene early on in the movie that contains some clue that would serve as the master key to solving the mystery. And this, this scene or this memory keeps replaying in their mind, but they're unable to recall or figure out what that key detail is until the final resolution. So I think about the museum murder scene in the bird with the crystal plumage or the face in the hallway in deep red and so forth. Hmm. Interesting. So looking back through this lens, like is the telephone sort of a short form proto Jallo in a way? I think it kind of is. It, it has some of that same, 
uh, naturalistic terror mystery sensibility. It has a clue detail in the room, except the protagonist, I don't know if she sees it. I don't think she does, but I'm thinking about the zoom in on the eyes in the window looking through the mm-hmm. blinds, which is very creepy. It does have that that creepy voyeuristic and sexually charged sensibility, which I do not always enjoy in these movies, to be honest. Though it is not as stylized as a lot of later Jallo, which I would have enjoyed more. I mean, I kind of wish Bava had played up his, his visual sense more in this segment. Uh, but yeah. with, with Blood and Black Lace that comes later, I almost wonder if Bava sort of cross-fertilized different parts of his own creative process after Black Sabbath. Like if he started thinking okay, what if I did a story that was more like this, set in the modern world, it's sort of a naturalistic mystery terror, uh, like the telephone, but I filmed it with that otherworldly visual sensibility that I used in the Wordulac, where, where everything mm. glows with magic power. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's talk about the, the Wordulac or the Wordulac here. Oh, yeah. Are we going to wuh or are we going to vuh? Um, what, did, what did they use in the film? I thought I was hearing a vuh, uh, but... Uh, but we could go either way. I don't think the uh, monsters mind. I'm I'm going to go va. Let's 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 assume that's authentic and then try it. We could be wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, how about the Vertilac? So the Vertilac, I I think uh, picking up after the first segment, which I which I didn't especially love, the Vertilac I think is extraordinary. Um, it's this Carpathian Gothic tale where these auroras of weird color just drip from the crags. Like I said earlier, it's a new, you know, it goes on my list of favorite Boris Karloff roles. He plays this shaggy, wild, purple Kurt Vonnegut type guy. You, <laughs> you notice he looks like Vonnegut yeah, yeah, sometimes? Yeah, yeah, he does. Uh, and, and this whole segment is just full of of awesome Slavic twang and and this menace of the hills. Absolutely wonderful. The visual world that Bava creates in here that, that, that maybe isn't noticeable right at first, uh, but then just really uh, uh, leeches in. He, he creates this dark domain that is occupied entirely by fog and ruins and desolate farmhouses, um, multiple just absolutely creepy scenes and sequences. Uh, I, yeah, I absolutely loved it. I, in fact, if, if you have never watched this film and you're going to pick it up, I, I give you. I, I think you should watch it in its entirety. But if you need to, you can go ahead and skip the telephone and go straight to this, uh, straight to the Vertilac. So uh, to do a very quick plot description on it, I don't want to spoil everything about it. But mm-hmm. it begins with the personable Mark Damon, uh, who is <laughs> uh, he plays a an aristocrat who he's a count or something. I don't recall exactly what he is, but he's he's riding through the mountains and he's clearly in a in a rural rustic area. And he comes across a corpse just lying there by a riverside. And uh, so this is a corpse that's had its head removed and it has been stabbed through the heart with a very distinctive dagger. And so he's like, oh, I guess I got to do something about this. So he picks up the corpse and he he carries it with him uh, to a nearby village. Or I don't know if it's even a village. It might just sort of be the compound of one family, you know, the, under the heading of this one patriarch in, in his house. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, he comes to this house out in the mountains and he goes in to to meet the people who live there and he says, "Hey, I found this corpse." And immediately they know what's going on. They're like, "Oh, yes, uh, that is our father's dagger you found through the heart of this corpse, and that's because our father has gone out to kill the Wordalac." Or well, let's see. 
do I remember? Did they establish that the, the being he was trying to kill, they knew was a word or did they just think it was a local highwayman and murderer that their father was going out to kill? There was sort of blurring of the lines. There. Yeah, there, there was both because there the, clearly this region is dealing with a serious word problem, but then the, the word has also been identified as a particular individual who is also a notorious highwayman. Right. So from this, they conclude, oh, okay, our father succeeded in his quest. He, you know, he went out into the mountains to find this criminal, this highwayman, and kill him. And here's his body, but where, where's Pop? You know, mm-hmm. uh, you, would, you would think he would have come back by now. And uh, so the family members here, they include the, I believe, the, the two sons and the daughter of, of Boris Karloff's character, and then the oldest son's wife and child as well. And so they tell the story, well, our father went out in the, into the mountains to hunt down this this brigand and, and possible uh, supernatural menace, the Vertiloc, and and kill him. And then he but they but he warned us, if I come back after five days, don't let me in because uh oh, yeah. then I'm gonna be a Vertilac probably by that time. Yes. And it, there's a great plot device of ambiguity because when does Boris Karloff show up? right at the toll of midnight on the fifth day. So he's like coming in right on the line and you don't know one way or another. Yeah, though, I I mean, I I think one of the... One of the the messages of this this whole sequence here is that if Grandpa says he he might be a Vertiloc, just go ahead and assume he's a Vertiloc because uh, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be the safer assumption. Some of you might be wondering, is is a Vertiloc really a thing? Well, uh, I, I did look it up, and according to folklorist Carol Rose, who I often refer to uh, with my monster queer, queries here, uh, it's, it's actually more werewolf than vampire, but in the Slavic tradition, the two concepts are kind of interlocked. Um, mm. One version, at least, was that when a werewolf is killed, it transforms into a vampire that could then reassume the form of a wolf, and Vertiloc apparently means wolf's hair. Uh, but in this movie, what we see is is essentially a, a take on the vampire legend with uh, with a fun twist. Well, I don't know if it's fun, depending on which end of it. If you're just enjoying the horror of it, it's uh, I guess it's fun. If you're a character in the in the story, not so fun. And that is that the uh, the monster when it comes back, when it takes on the form of those it has killed, it's going to be drawn most to those that it loved in life. Those are going to be the ones that it focuses all of its monstrous intensity on. Yeah, this is a vampire as betrayer of trust, Uh, not just a vampire that needs blood, anybody's blood, just got to have a meal of blood. This is a vampire that specifically comes for its loved ones. Yeah, which – uh, I was thinking about this a little bit um, because, again, the, the pacing of the film, I think, invites contemplation and, and also an enjoyment of the visuals. Uh, but, like, well, what is – wonder what this this, uh, this sequence and what this, this legend is um, – like, what does it say about, like, love and bereavement? Uh, you know, the, the twisted way that our, our strongest positive emotions can become negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then ultimately, is this story advising us not to love anybody? Because because <laughs> that alone would protect us from monsters? Well, th- that's a good question. And then I want to take that a step further. A lot of horror movies have mm, very weakly earned love stories where, you know, mm-hmm. the characters fall in love with each other. You don't really see a lot of reason for them to fall. You know, you don't see a lot of like scenes of chemistry of them, you know, uh, 
finding things they like about one another just kind of happens because the script says so. This story, the Vertiloc, has a couple of characters who uh, seem to fall in love with each other very quickly and in this sort of weakly justified way. But I wonder if that's not intentional in this case, uh, mm. saying something about like falling, you know, loving too easily and there being a kind of danger in that. Yeah, yeah, the character that Damon plays. Um, you, you do kind of feel that, right? It's like, like, what do you do? You're so in, you're, you're in love. You just met her and you're so in love with her that you are going to risk incurring the wrath of her, you know, undead transformed family. Uh, it seems, it seems foolish and it seems like, uh, as a fool in a short horror work, you are going to uh, be punished for this foolishness. Well, it, yeah, and it also says something about family, I think, because, uh, again, this will be a minor spoiler. I don't think it'll ruin your enjoyment of the segment, no, which no. you can enjoy even if you read the whole plot ahead of time. But warning to spoil the ending. So I, I think it is basically the fact that Mark Damon's character, he comes in, he very quickly and maybe unjustifiably falls in love with Stenka. And then Stenka apparently sort of reciprocates. You know, she likes him, mm-hmm. too. Um, and you get the impression that it's interesting that at first – Mark Damon's character is not really threatened by the Vertilac because he's not a member of the family and it only wants right. its own family. But it's once she reciprocates his feelings and they fall in love with each other that then he is also subject to the threat of having his blood drank, drink and drunk, uh, you know, of being attacked by the supernatural creature. It's once there is a bond of love between him and her that now he is fair game for this monster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there's probably something telling in there about attachments. Uh, uh, but at the same time, it's like he's he clearly is loving strongly and mm-hmm. loving deeply, um, albeit very briefly. Uh, so maybe it's all worth it. It's worth all the the anguish and death uh, because the love was that strong. It seems to have there. There is a sort of a bittersweet romantic uh, element to the uh, to, to the way this this wraps up. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, overall, every everything else we've said about the Vertiloc, the atmosphere is just amazing, and it, uh, there are mm. such wonderful scenes of looking out the window and maybe seeing Boris Karloff in his in his purple Kurt Vonnegut uh, with the with the shaggy uh, furry hood. Uh, oh God, it's just so so good. Oh, the sequence with the child crying for the mother. Oh, that, yeah. that's super creepy. That one gave me the shivers. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, another great thing about this uh, sequence is it has a great decapitated head. So at this point in, in my life, in my film, uh, film going life, and I imagine you're much the same, Joe, uh, I've seen a vast spectrum of decapitated head effects ranging from just the laughable to the, you know, at times shockingly realistic, uh-huh. um, though that, that's, it's interesting to think of like realistic and non-realistic decapitated head effects, because I think most all of us don't have anything to judge it against, you know? And I think that's ultimately a good thing. We can't really, we, we don't look at a decapitated head and go like, wait a minute, that's not what a decapitated head looks like. Uh, I saw a decapitated head this morning. <laughs> the get out my faces of death videos. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, there's, uh, I, I love a, a, even a hokey beheading effect. Uh, but this film has, has not one, but two beautifully disturbing corpse head sculpts. Uh, and these were actually created by Mario Bava's father, uh, Eugenio uh, uh, Bava, uh, which I thought was interesting. They, they're they're mm. both absolutely beautiful and, of course, terrifying. 
Well, speaking of beautiful and terrifying corpses, we got to also mention the third segment in this movie, A Drop of Water, which uh, for me, the Vertilock is the standout, but A Drop of Water I thought was also very, very good. Uh, and it has, I, I got to say, one of the creepiest movie corpses I have ever seen, along with a, a wonderful twist and some really great uh, set and lighting choices. Yeah, this one, uh, again, the telephone, things are a little maybe more subdued, but still pretty pretty brilliant, but subdued for Bava. Uh, Vertilock, colorful and wonderful and, and out there. This one, too, is just just absolutely touching your eyeballs with its, uh, with its color scheme. Um, Specifically, the thing that stuck with me most about the drop of water, there were two things. One is that it has this marvelous uh, creepy corpse design, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the other was that the main character in this plays a nurse who lives in an apartment that has this oval-shaped window, and outside the window is a constantly gently pulsing green light. And I don't know what exactly that was supposed to be in terms of realism. I think there's a quick shot from outside at first where it's raining out and, and maybe it's supposed to be some kind of rotating sign or something. I'm not, I'm not quite positive. But the effect within the apartment is these pulses of green that are I, – I just love it. I love it. I want to live in that. Yeah, that, that window is absolutely amazing. It's like a – um, a horizontal oval uh, shape, and it has this uh, this kind of uh, like iron latticework cross in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never seen anything quite like it. And yeah, and then this pulsating light. So this was very much a sequence in the film where I I, I think I was a little uncertain about like what was supposed to be happening and, and you know what's supposed to be pulling me along character wise or plot wise, but I could not look away from that window. And I it was reminding me of something too. And I realized it was it was reminding me of a scene from the nineteen ninety seven sci fi film Event Horizon. Um which uh, which I know you've seen as well, Joe. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, uh, there's a sequence where there is a corpse floating aboard the Event Horizon spaceship, and it's floating in front of this cross-shaped window that has kind of bluish-greenish uh, space lights pulsating behind it. And you think it was influenced by this short? I wonder if it was, because for, for, for starters, Event Horizon is a film that is not shy about taking inspiration from other films. No. Uh, I love it, but like you, like you, you see the, the DNA of these other films in it. Um, uh, it it's all about that. And, uh, and so, yeah, I wonder if the cinematographer on Event Horizon, uh, an individual by the name of Adrian Biddle, who worked on Aliens and Judge Dredd and various other films, I wonder... If if this particular scene is kind of a nod to Bava, because it, uh, it it feels Bava esque, um, you know, it, it feels it feels like it might be a, a slight tip of the hat. Event Horizon could be an interesting movie to come back to because I find it to be a very uh, very strange and uh, an unusual combination of very inspired and very hack. Mm, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, there's a there. I loved Event Horizon when it came out, and then. Uh, when I rewatched it several years ago, there were still things I absolutely loved about it, but some things were like, I, I, I kind of sighed and groaned at. But still, yeah. it, it has a place in my heart. Well, I guess you could say much like the telephone, the plot of A Drop of Water is pretty straightforward. So a mm-hmm. nurse uh, is called out to the apartment of a, a woman that she has been taking care of who has just died. 
And mm-hmm. this woman apparently was involved in the occult. I think they say that she died during a seance. Yeah. And so then the nurse must go into the room where her, her dead body is laying and help prepare the corpse. But when she goes into the room, she notices that the, the cadaver here has a, has a splendid, very expensive looking piece of jewelry on it, a beautiful ring that has maybe a sapphire in it or something. Mm-hmm. And she looks at it and is like, well, is this just, you know, is this ring going to go to waste? Is this expensive piece <laughs> of jewelry just going to go into a coffin and then rot in the ground? I could grab that thing and take it with me. And then uh, and you you get the sense that the nurse is sort of living in poverty, like that she could mm-hmm. she could use a, a big cash in at the pawn shop. Um, she needs to so buy some she, curtains to put over that creepy window. Yeah, exactly. She sleep at night. <laughs> Um, so she grabs the ring. Uh, but of course, yeah, uh, I don't know if you want to grab the ring off the corpse of a lady who just died while being involved with the occult. Right. And so the rest of this segment has some wonderful, uh, scenes of the haunting of a guilty conscience. And then there's also an excellent twist at the ending of, uh, of this segment too. Yeah. I've kind of downplayed the, like the, the plotting, uh, of Bava films, I guess in general here, but, um, but but yeah, I, I think all three sequences have some some fun um, some some fun plot twists and some fun developments. Uh, you know, the, you you don't really know where everything's going to go. And things don't follow a, a, a clearly defined path, uh, which uh, which is rather pleasurable. I agree. So I mean, as we were saying at the beginning, uh, horror anthologies are often kind of uh, you know the, your different segments are going to be of different quality. But I would say after. I guess if we're wrapping up here at the end, uh, I really enjoyed two out of three segments, but if you only check out one of the segments from this movie, definitely I would say the Vertilac, the Vertilac, the Vertilac. Yeah. Come for the Vertilac, stay for the, the drop of water, uh, and find something to love in the telephone. Oh, but then also we should, we have to put, come back to our host here because one of the fun things about the, uh, the American international pictures, um, a release of it is that yeah we we added uh, this intro bit from Boris Karloff, uh, and apparently they filmed some segments of Boris Karloff uh, that would have gone between each of the the segments, but they didn't use those. So we just go from segment one to segment two to segment three. But then when segment three ends, we come back to Boris Karloff, uh, and it, weirdly enough, he's he's like in his his uh, he seems to be in costume from the Verloc. He's riding a horse. But he has this kind of uh, almost Crypt Keeper esque, uh, 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 you know, jovial uh, atmosphere about him, and mm-hmm. I can't even remember what he's telling us because as he's saying, you know, wrapping up for everybody, we pan out and we have this kind of. Um, um, uh, uh, holy mountain moment where uh, we pan out and we see that it's a set. We see a cameraman. We see people holding up uh, these bushes that are supposed to be, um, you know, uh, uh, rushing past him as he rides this horse. And we see that the horse itself is just a saddle on like a, a fake horse rump uh, that's uh, that's being put into motion. Uh, and it's such a weird ending. I was thinking about it. It's like why why did we punctuate this this film Black Sabbath? This trio of horrifying tales each with a dark ending and i was wondering if it was because they thought well 
you know, it's 1963. Audiences don't want to go home feeling depressed. They need to go home with a smile on their face. So we need this, uh, we need a fun in- ending. We need, we need Boris Karloff reminding them that it's all just a movie. It's n- none of this is real. Um, it, it's, uh, it was weird. Yeah, I'm not really sure what motivated that ending. Maybe just, yeah, like you're saying, send them home with a smile on their face. But I, I loved mm-hmm. it. Rachel and I uh, both really appreciated the, the pulling back to see, especially the best part of it for me was the people running around with the potted plants to move them in front of the yes. camera to simulate the the horse actually traveling through stuff in the foreground. Yeah, it's, it's something. I, I guess thinking to other... Uh, horror host environments like you need to do one of two things either you have the horror host punctuate the terror or the cerebral nature of it you know like the 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 voiceover for the outer limits is all about really driving home the serious message of the piece Mm -hmm. um you know or if you're watching twilight zone it's all about reminding you of how dark and mysterious things really are but the crypt keeper he just comes back to make several punny jokes <laughs> and yeah. uh, and so you know what Kor- karloff is doing here is very much in, in the crypt keeper mode of of uh, lightening the mood i feel all right well we're gonna go ahead and close this one out but we recommend everybody uh, yeah this is the halloween season so if you need a nice gothic atmospheric film to to watch uh check out black sabbath um this is also a fine one, you know, just to play visually in the background. If you just want some really strong uh, visuals, this one's this one's good to go. Um, Black Sabbath is widely available for digital rental or purchase. Again, I watched it on Apple TV by doing a free preview of AMC Plus, uh, but it's also widely available on disc, including Kino Classics. They have a Blu-ray of it, though. I guess. Uh, I'll, I will leave the research to you, figuring out what version you're about to purchase or rent. Because, uh, yeah, we both watched the Italian language version subtitled, but I think there is a dubbed version as well. I don't know what the availability on that is. I can't speak to it personally. I can't comment on that, but I, I do think there are different versions that have different levels of sort of color saturation and all that. Mm-hmm. Try to find one with the really intense colors. Yeah, that's it, the most that's important thing. Yeah. yeah, the colors speak volumes. The colors speak in ways that the, the dialogue uh, and the subtitles are going to uh, are, are going to pale in comparison to. All right, well, we'll be we'll be back next week with another, uh, I think, thoroughly Halloweeny selection. But in the meantime, you can listen to Weird House Cinema every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Artifact on Wednesday, Listener Mail on Monday. But on Fridays, we take a little time to just discuss a weird film like Black Sabbath. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 